This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Later this evening, this evening being July 12th at about 8 o'clock, on our local PBS affiliate, so that would be Channel 6 KVIE here in Sacramento, the Road Trip Program with host Huel Hauser is going to pay a visit here to UC Davis. We're big fans of Huel Hauser and his program Road Trip. We're very pleased that he came here to the UCD campus, and we wished to speak with him about it. Unfortunately, he was on vacation this week. So we will instead speak with Mitchell Benson. Mr. Benson is the News Service Director for University Communications and has an excellent article on the UC Davis News and Information website about this particular program. One of the things Mr. Hauser did was visit the Raptor Center. We've been meaning to talk about uh, our Raptor Center on this program for some time, and we hope to do that today. But let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which, of course, as we mentioned, is July 12th. On July 12, 1679, British King Charles II ratified the Habeas Corpus Act. Regarded as the greatest writ of liberty, the actual act, while not judging the guilt or innocence of a person, set out to determine whether his imprisonment was unlawful. On July 12, 1843, in the United States, the leader of the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith, sanctioned the practice of polygamy as a result of divine revelation. On July 12, 1943, the Battle of Kursk took place during World War II. Considered the greatest clash of armor in military history, 900 Russian and 900 German tanks engaged as the German offensive was stopped in this devastating battle. It marked the turning point on the Eastern Front. On July 12, 1957, the U.S. Surgeon General Leroy Burney reported a direct link between smoking and lung cancer, but the government in its wisdom decided not to make a big deal out of it. So they pretty much sat on the information for another seven years. And finally, on July 12, 1960, Echo One was launched by the United States. It was the first passive satellite. It was, in essence, a giant balloon a couple of hundred feet across and was used to bounce radio and TV signals around the world. I remember as a small boy going out in the backyard with my dad to watch the overhead passing of Echo One. It was the first uh, satellite I, I can recall seeing. And by the way, if you're out on any of these summer nights and you look up, you probably will notice several Earth satellites in orbit. And no, these are not the geosynchronous ones that you have to adjust your, uh, your backyard uh, satellite dish off of. These are more likely spy satellites in polar orbit. But uh, it's fun to go out and take a look for one, and I, and I highly recommend it. Our quote of the day comes from Tennessee State Senator Raymond Finney, who said, It's not something I want my name on, in reference to his lack of support of a resolution in the state legislature to honor singer and Tennessee native Justin Timberlake. Our quip of the day comes from the immortal economist John Maynard Keynes, who once said, When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And no, we have no reason to believe that John Maynard Keynes was addressing any member of the current Bush administration. Our statistic of the day comes from the Associated Press, which noted an authoritative new federal survey has found that 29% of American men report having 15 or more female sexual partners in a lifetime, compared to 9% of women who also report having sex with 15 or more men. The median number of lifetime sexual partners for men was seven. For women, four. Our true or false question of the day is as follows. There are no calories in brewed black coffee. True or false? And the answer is false, although it's reported that 20 ounces of black coffee contains just 15 calories. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
It was a good week last week for fitness buffs when Jack LaLanne, at age 92, told the Washington Post he continues to get up at 6 o'clock every morning to hit the gym for a two-hour workout. LaLanne told the Post that when he turned 65, he pulled 65 boats filled with 6,500 pounds of wood pulp. When he turned 70, he towed 70 boats with 70 people for one and a half miles. And he's apparently throwing down the gauntlet for his 95th birthday, for which he plans to swim the more than 20 miles from the California coast out to Santa Catalina Island. And yes, this correspondent must admit that this crazy fitness guru has been something of an inspiration. For my birthday this weekend, I'm going to either swim the Golden Gate or Lake Tahoe's Emerald Bay. We plan a full report on next week's program. According to The Week magazine, last week was a bad week for America's Drug Enforcement Agency. After an estimated 2,000 pounds of marijuana went up in smoke during a warehouse fire in Texas. The 35 firefighters who tackled the blaze reported disorientation and extreme lethargy, described by the magazine as classic symptoms of cannabis consumption. Said Fire Chief Sean Snyder, his men would probably fail a drug test. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for The Voice of America, when Iran announced that its state broadcast agency is launching a 24-hour English-language satellite news channel, which it says will tell the stories that the BBC and CNN leave out. The head of live programming for the network, Nader Rad, denied that his network will be a propaganda tool of Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. It is a state-owned channel, but it is not managed by the state, he said. Uh, we should mention at this point in the program, maybe we shouldn't mention at this point in the program, but I think I will anyway, that we are uh, talking to the good people over at KSAC, 12.40 a.m., and there's a possibility we'll be able to do some of what we do here over there. We definitely do not envision rebroadcasting uh, these programs over on 12.40 a.m., but rather uh, extending what we do here and doing more of it on the other end of the radio dial. We will have more news on that front as it develops. Uh, we'd like to also draw your attention in terms of media news to yesterday's Sacramento Bee article by Sam McManus about uh, the good people up at KVMR up in Grass Valley. Well, more correctly, Nevada City, but I always think of Nevada City-Grass Valley as one place. Like uh, KDVS here at 90.3 FM on your dial, uh, KVMR at 89.5 is a community-based station. This station has a core staff of students here at the university, but a lot of us uh, are people from the community at large. I myself am, am an alumnus of this great institution, but a lot of people that uh, you hear are not. So we have a great deal in common with, uh, with KVMR, and uh, we're pleased to see this excellent article about uh, what they do. Sam McManus's article notes that nearly all the programming um, is generated by KVMR, which since it has debuted in 1978 has managed to keep its grassroots firmly planted. Even as we see more corporate consolidation of commercial broadcasting and a move by non-commercial national public radio toward the mainstream. We are somewhat just sad to report that this, uh, this grassroots bias uh, is probably the main reason why we've made no progress in getting this program onto 89.5. We know we have a lot of listeners up in Nevada City, and people ask, uh, why, why, why aren't you on KVMR? And, well, I guess, I guess uh, there hasn't yet been a meeting of minds between yours truly and Steve Baker on this, but uh, you never know. But uh, like here, uh, like the station here, KDVS, KVMR has people uh, that really want to get on the air. And they note that even the less than coveted 4 a.m. shifts uh, up in Nevada City are, are staffed by you know, one of the station's 150 volunteer DJs. 
Like uh, this station, you can hear Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! on KVMR. Article notes that when Amy Goodman spoke in Sacramento last October, KVMR bust listeners down for the event. And I'm proud to say that uh, in conjunction with Amy Goodman's visit, I did speak to her over at Insight and KXJZ. Evidently last month when Michael Moore held a screening of Sicko at the Crest Theater, he had such a strong KVMR contingent that he mentioned in his opening remarks, saying to the people of Grass Valley and Nevada City, you've got the best public radio station in America, KVMR. Well, we're not sure we could completely agree with that, but... But we do suspect that Sam McManus is right when he says that, uh, you know, it's not mere pandering because Michael Moore's sister, Anne, in fact, lives in Grass Valley. And Moore says he often listens to the station's web stream. We're also pleased to note that KVMR apparently has an annual budget of close to a million dollars, which keeps them out of financial trouble. Evidently, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting counts for 17% of their budget, and the rest comes from underwriting. And the rest comes from underwriting, membership, 25% of which is from Sacramento, and special events. Anyway, we've talked to their news director, Mike Thornton, on this program. I've spoken to Steve Baker over at Insight. Uh, We say congratulations to the good people up at KVMR and keep up the good work. Tell you one thing I really don't know how to do much of on this program is really promote but I got quite a kick out of uh, the article in Fast Company magazine, a new magazine to me, article about uh, Mark Twain, how he learned early the art of self-promotion. Rob Walker, writing in the magazine, noted that uh, after Twain had written an early series of travel articles that were picked up by several newspapers, he decided to leverage it into a publicity event and turn it into a lecture. He rented the Academy of Music on Pine Street in San Francisco, where he was living at the time, for 50 borrowed dollars. Got about $150 worth of printing and advertising to promote the event. Mind you, this is 1866, so that the $200 he spent would be more like, you know, 2500 today. But then he took out a newspaper ad promoting his lecture on the Sandwich Islands. <laughs> Said the ad, in large type, A splendid orchestra, with lower type below, is in town but has not been engaged. In larger block letters, a den of ferocious wild beasts, below in smaller letters, will be on exhibition in the next block. Large type said, magnificent fireworks. (laughs) Underneath it said, we're in contemplation for this occasion, but the idea has been abandoned. And noted lastly in large letters, a grand torchlight process, which was joined below with, may be expected. In fact, the public are privileged to expect Whatever they please. Anyway, it's a pretty funny example from 1866 of mock advertising, uh, you know, and, and actually, apparently, it worked. His performance sold out. All right, a final item for segment one today. We'd like to talk about uh, the return of Al Gore. We mentioned on this show some months back that if Al Gore got lean and mean, people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were going to start getting worried. They figured if he stayed fat, he wasn't running. Well... He's shed the pounds. He's running. To which we say, thank God. This magazine, Fast Company, attracted my attention because of the cover story, Al Gore's $100 million makeover. Al apparently made some good investments in Apple and Google in recent years, and he's got a lot of money to help him in his run for the presidency, which we think he needs to make public as soon as possible. Or maybe not. Maybe this clever strategy of Running by not running is going to work out, but at any rate, we hope so. We would definitely like to also refer you to Rolling Stone's special report titled The Climate Crisis, uh, which talks about how Al Gore is building a mass political movement to stop global warming. There were recently a series of concerts uh, last weekend, in fact, around the world. A lot of people are pulling together on this, and uh, we say, you know, bravo. And bravo as well to Tim Dickinson, who in the same issue has an article titled Six Years of Deceit, subtitled Inside the Bush Administration's Secret Campaign to Deny Global Warming and Let Polluters Shape America's Climate Policy. We recommend the article to you highly. And in uh, the three minutes that remain to us in this segment, I think we're going to go on the web and play for you a slideshow put on the Rolling Stone website by Tim Dickinson addressing the issues which are in this article. 
The latest science tells us that we have less than a decade to implement steep cuts in greenhouse emissions if we want to avoid a climate catastrophe. Rising sea levels, millions of environmental refugees, global political instability, legions of Katrinas. So why did the White House reject in May an ambitious G8 proposal to slash greenhouse gases, offering instead a proposal that would give nations 15 years to tinker with voluntary standards, creating only aspirational goals for serious cuts that wouldn't even have to be met until as late as 2075? The answer is Dick Cheney. An investigation by Rolling Stone, relying on thousands of pages of internal documents and interviews with more than a dozen former and current administration officials and climate scientists, reveals that it was Cheney who reneged on the administration's campaign promise in 2000 to regulate carbon dioxide pollution. And it was Cheney who locked the administration into a reckless emissions policy, the finer details of which have effectively been outsourced to the fossil fuel industry. According to former EPA chief Christine Todd Whitman, Cheney, at a gut level, simply doesn't believe that humans are causing climate change. As Whitman describes it, she was boxed out of climate decisions, with Cheney calling the shots. The White House policy arm that Cheney used to implement his do-nothing climate policy was the Council on Environmental Quality, CEQ. CEQ, in turn, has taken its cues from industry. Less than a month after Bush and Cheney took office, Exxon, in a fax to CEQ, demanded a house cleaning of the government's top climate scientists. Exxon's wish was CEQ chief James Connaughton's command. A former lobbyist for industrial polluters, Connaughton's first directive was to insist that a scientist on Exxon's hit list be dealt. She was soon dispatched, as were the rest of the climate experts targeted by the world's largest oil company. To keep a lid on the inconvenient truths of climate change, Connaughton brought on board, as his chief of staff, an old friend, Phil Cooney, the former climate team leader of the American Petroleum Institute, where his job had been to sow doubt about the seriousness of climate change. Part of Cooney's efforts to edit federal climate science documents was exposed in 2005 by the New York Times. But documents uncovered by Rolling Stone revealed that this was no rogue effort. In his role as climate commissar, Cooney reported not only to Connaughton, but also to the president's chief advisor, Karl Rove. After a UN report this winter called global warming unequivocal and said humans were to blame, Cheney took to the air with a competing assessment. We are going to see a big debate going forward, he said on ABC, about the extent to which warming is part of the normal cycle versus the extent to which it's caused by man. What we know today, he concluded, is just not enough to run out and try to slap together some policy that's going to quote-unquote solve the problem. That's Tim Dickinson, whose article in the June 28, 2007 Rolling Stone is one I think you should take in. And in a not unrelated headline, we refer you to yesterday's Sacramento Bee, page one, is U.S. slanting science, big question mark. Subheadline, Politics Trump Health, ex-Surgeon General says. Article by Gardner Harris, New York Times, reprinted in the B. Noted that former Surgeon General Richard Carmona told the Congressional Panel Tuesday that top Bush administration officials repeatedly tried to weaken or suppress important public health reports because of political considerations. We don't have time to talk any more about this today, but we would refer you back to our own website, radioparallax.com, for our interview with Chris Mooney on this very topic. This story is an ongoing national disgrace, and we're going to continue to cover it. Let's take a short break and come back and talk about Huell Hauser's visit to UC Davis. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.
Joining us now in the program is Mitchell Benson. He is the News Service Director of University Communications and is one of the numerous people we rely upon this program to put you in touch with what's going on here at UC Davis. In this case, uh, Mr. Benson was involved with the visit by Huell Hauser to UC Davis and can tell us all about it. We hope we'll do so now. Uh, Mitchell Benson, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Mitchell, we ought to take a minute to explain what the UC Davis News Service does for people because, you know, we really rely on you guys uh, week to week. Sure. Um, The News Service is the public information communications arm of the campus. We have uh, a staff of 10 professionals here. Uh, We do everything from write, edit, and publish Dateline, which is the staff faculty newspaper for the campus that circulates around 13,000 issues every week. Uh, We also do two broadcast news pieces every week for KVIE-TV in Sacramento. Uh, And we also have a staff of public information officers here that handle inquiries from the news media, trying to hook up with experts in different fields. And we also uh, prepare and distribute press releases on the people, places, and things, and research of this campus that we think would be of interest to the news media. Well... We here at Radio Parallax, and I know the good folks over at uh, KXJZ rely upon you, so uh, we want to thank you for your good work. Thank you. Um, Huell Hauser came to visit, I guess, a couple of weeks back, and you were involved in uh, his, his walking about the campus with a camera crew. Uh, what, uh, what did you guys go visit? Well, it was a, it was a fascinating uh, experience and a real enjoyable opportunity. Uh, I'll tell you, first of all, for your listeners who aren't familiar with Huell Hauser, he obviously has a very dedicated and devoted following. I can't tell you how many times he had to stop rolling tape because people were interrupting him to shake his hand, to pat him on the back, <laughs> to ask for an autograph. Uh, it was actually quite a kick, and uh, Yule was pretty good-humored about it about the entire afternoon, entire morning and afternoon. Yule is sort of an um, icon on public television. He does uh, several different shows, but uh, it's basically the same technique in every, every instance in which he travels around the state with a microphone and a videographer, and he just goes to places that uh, you and I would be interested in visiting. And he takes us there via video and lets us know that if we do go there, this is what we'll find interesting and enjoyable. We were very fortunate that you want to do something about the Davis area. And uh, he contacted my new service here. And what I did is I brought our staff together, and we came up with as many good ideas as we could think of that would be attractions on this campus that it would be open to the public. Again, Yule's whole thing is he doesn't want to find out about some research project that you and I could never see if we were just, you know, driving through the Davis area on a, on a, um, on a visit. He wanted things that were available to the public on a day-to-day basis. And uh, our list uh, that we put together was so compelling for Yule that he decided to dedicate his entire hour-long show that's called A Road Trip to UC Davis. And I'm told... Uh, talking to folks at his production company as well as at KVI-TV, that this is the first time that Yule has ever dedicated an entire episode of any of his shows, either half hour or hour long, to one UC or CSU campus. So we're excited about it. We're very proud about that. Well, smartly done. In reading your summary of of the event here on on the web, uh, I was attracted to the fact that, I didn't know this, the Bohart Museum, at UCD is North America's seventh largest insect collection overall and the third largest among universities. It's a fascinating place, and uh, I personally am not a fan of touching live <laughs> insects, but I guess Yule was. And, uh, he seemed to enjoy both the Madagascar hissing cockroaches as well as the Vietnamese walking stick. And uh, in the piece that, uh, that airs Thursday night, uh, you'll see Yule uh, playing around with these these uh, insects, unlike uh, anything I would care to do, but um, he was a good sport, and um, these were some of the live insects in the museum. Uh, to be sure, the, the, uh, the, the large majority of the collection are insects that are, you know, in, uh, in file cabinets and displays, uh, but those two are also available to the public on a, on a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 basis. Well, every picnic day, I've, I've, I've run into a few of those Madagascar hiss, hissing cockroaches, and they seem to be about the size of chihuahuas, so they're, yeah. there. they're definitely not for everyone. That's true. <laughs> um, and you guys, of course, made a trip out to the Arboretum. That was the thing that was so impressive to Yule that we ended up actually making three different stops at the Arboretum. We went to the, um, 
the Shields Oak Grove. We went to the Redwood Grove. And we also went to the new Terrace Garden that is just um, uh, the other side of Borders Books uh, in, the, in the little shopping center uh, in Davis. And uh, he was really impressed with it. It was a beautiful day. Uh, we were in the Redwood Grove as the sun was rising over the trees, and uh, it created for some spectacular colors in the piece that will be airing uh, uh, on, on PBS. Davis is considered by many to be the bicycle capital of the United States, and he certainly did not uh, did not miss that aspect of Davis. Not at all. He um, we we had a fun time. Uh, we stood at an intersection right by one of the many traffic circles on campus, where bicycles are going basically five directions at once. Uh, we stood there between eleven and noon one day to catch the traffic during class breaks, and uh, he got a kick out of that. And he spent some time talking to the. Uh, the manager of the bike barn, uh, it, which is a remarkable facility. If anyone has a chance to stop by, uh, I think they do something like 10,000 repairs a year. It's a uh, one of the busiest bike shops in the country, and uh, it is in an old dairy barn, keeping in the you know the Aggie tradition of UC Davis. And uh, uh, at the end of the uh, the piece he did on on bicycling, he hopped on a bike himself, and uh, as he pointed out, this, the uh, the bike trail uh, the bike path was absolutely empty when he got on and he said basically that you know i'm uh, i'm smart enough to know not to get on a bike on this campus when there are other bicycles running so uh, but he, he enjoyed that i think the most surprising thing for me was to, that he apparently went to the segundo dining commons and raved about it what, what's that all about well it's uh it's it's uh my single most favorite place on campus i have uh earned some notoriety or or uh or fame for nicknaming it the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, they have phenomenal food quality, and it's set up like a food court at a at a fancy uh, shopping mall. There are uh, several stations throughout the Segundo Dining Commons, and anyone can come in off the street and for a very reasonable amount of money. I forget it's somewhere between six and eight dollars. You can have an all-you-can-eat buffet, basically. Uh, and the quality is excellent, and it's everything from hamburgers and vegan burgers to uh, Korean uh, barbecue, uh, fresh pizza, tamales. Uh, it's just a remarkable uh, array of food. Fresh salad bar, sandwich bars, uh, and uh, soft-serve yogurt or ice cream. It's, it's, uh, it's some place that you, uh, you eat and you pile up the plates. I've, I've been known to be a five-plater myself. I, I look forward to someday doing six plates there. I've never, I'm not in training yet, but I hope to do it someday. And Yule, bless his heart, did go for not one but two rounds of fish tacos that he raved about throughout the rest of the afternoon. Well, I'm astonished in doing this show for five years. I've somehow missed this resource at UCD, but I can assure you that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get up get to speed on this one. Good idea. Uh, you went out to the horse barn. Yeah, we met a couple of uh, very nice students there and saw some Beautiful, beautiful horses. It's uh, again. This is another one of these spots on campus that's open to the public. You can bring your kids there, show them these these beautiful animals that are, for the most part, very well behaved, very gentle. And um, he enjoyed um, while the Segundo Dining Commons was uh, someplace he really enjoyed, and he certainly felt the Arboretum was the best spot on campus. I think he enjoyed talking to the students at the horse barn the most. He spent the most time chatting with them, these uh, animal science students. I don't know much about the UC Davis Meat Lab, but I guess if I watch the program, I'll learn quite a bit about it. Well, the, uh, the Meat Lab wasn't part of the show. The, the Meat Lab, uh, we, we put the Meat Lab on our website that we're using to promote the show ah. because uh, we felt that there were some things he couldn't get to that we still felt were of interest to the public. And that's how we have uh, the Meat Lab, the Botanical Conservatory, and the Robert Arneson Eggheads. are all three things on our campus that we think that if you're interested in spending a day at UC Davis, uh, then these are three spots you might want to see that didn't make it into Yule's tour nor into his TV show. Well, we hope to speak in a moment uh, to a Dr. Bill Ferrier from the California Raptor Center, a place we've been meaning to talk about for some time. But just, just briefly, how did Hewell's visit with the Raptor uh, Center go? Well, the most amazing thing about the visit to the Raptor Center was um, we were there purely by coincidence on a day when they were releasing a, a Raptor into the wild that uh, had been there for recuperation after it had suffered some sort of injury. I can't remember. I think it had a broken wing or some, some such injury that required surgery. 
this particular raptor was recuperating at the raptor center uh, for a while. And when we got there, uh, someone from the raptor center said, hey, would you by any chance be interested in watching us release a bird back into the wild? Well, of course, his eyes lit up. And uh, we then walked about 100 yards behind the raptor center out on a levee. And with the help of some students who uh, do a lot of the work at the raptor center, we got to see a beautiful, beautiful bird get released back into the wild after its treatment and recovery uh, at UC Davis. And it was a phenomenal sight. I'd never seen anything like it with my own eyes before. And luckily for the viewers of this show, um, uh, Hewell and his videographer captured the magnificence of this, of this bird taking off and flying up into the sky. It's, it's, uh, to me, it was, it's worth the price of admission of this entire piece. I'm really looking forward to seeing that on KVI here at 8 o'clock. That, that alone does sound like it's worth the price of admission. Mitchell, last question I have. It's something I know nothing about, uh, the C.N. Gorman Museum. I, I don't know anything about this. What, what, is, what is it? It's a, it's a beautiful museum that, um, that has uh, uh, Native American art, and the idea is to uh, there, there are a lot of Native American museums out there that focus on historical Native American art, and one of the things that... Um, they try to show at the C.N. Gorman Museum is a little bit more modern art and also art from the local region. So it's something that has a, a nice mix of, of paintings and sculpture and um, something that will, from time to time, highlight local artists, which is one of the nice touches uh, about the museum. So Mitchell, any final words for us? I guess the only thing I'd want to add is that we put together a beautiful uh, web page on Hauser's visit to UC Davis. And if you go to ucdavis.edu, www.ucdavis.edu, uh, you'll see uh, a big picture on our campus homepage of Yule and the two folks at the C.N. Gorman Museum. And just click on that picture, and that'll take you right to uh, a nice package of um, stories and tips we put together on how you, too, can take the same tour of campus that Yule Hauser did. And as I said earlier, we threw in a couple of places that, that Yule didn't get to that you might want to try on your own. Excellent. Well, Mitchell Benson, director of the UC Davis News Service, we appreciate your speaking with us. We would have liked to have, uh, to have uh, spoken to Mr. Huell Hauser, but you filled in very admirably for him. And uh, we'll try, we're going to try and get him on in the future. Maybe you can pull some strings for us. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> I think you'd get a kick out of him. And thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome, and thanks again for the good work you do over at the UC Davis News Service. Thanks a lot. All right. We've been meaning on this program to visit uh, the Raptor Center for some time. We haven't made it out there yet, uh, and so that Huell Hauser has beaten us to the punch on this one. We will do better in the future, and we'd like to start by bringing you someone who uh, is from UC Davis's Raptor Center. That would be Dr. Bill Ferrier. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Ferrier. Thank you, Doug. Nice to talk to you. Now, you guys have been out there uh, saving these injured uh, birds of prey for quite some time. We have. You know, the Raptor Center started originally in 1971 when a grad student at the time named Alita Morzente um, had an injured Swainson hawk that was presented to her. And she went to Dr. Frank Ogasawara, Professor Emeritus, who's now deceased, uh, uh, regard, regarding uh, starting a Raptor Center because she felt like there should be a place on campus where these birds could go. So Dr. Gasawara and Alita co-founded the Raptor Center, and at that time it was um, actually over near the university airport, and then subsequently it moved uh, south of campus off of Old Davis Road and uh, became part of the veterinary school um, in the 80s under Dr. Murray Fowler, and um, since then has remained with the veterinary school, and we see quite a few injured birds per year and rehabilitate as many as we can so that we can get them released back into the wild. And what, from what I read, you were able to do that with about uh, 60% of the birds. That's correct. Uh, we, we see about 250 uh, wild birds per year and release about 60% of them. And we use a lot of different techniques to do that. Some um, falconry methods actually um, are used to get these birds uh, in shape and release back into the wild. And we certainly need to give a lot of credit um, to the veterinary school because the veterinary school is responsible for um, doing the initial medical care for the birds. Um, for example, if they have a fractured wing, fractured leg, um, they're cared for um, medically at the teaching hospital, and then they go back to the Raptor Center for rehabilitation and then subsequent release into the wild.
What type of injury brings these birds to you? I know in the old days, uh, in the bad old days, people in the Bay Area where I grew up uh, would use birds of prey for target practice. Do we start, are they shot a lot of times, or how, what, what brings them in? You bet. I mean, almost anything. Um, I think that the most common thing that we see at the Raptor Center are these raptors that have been, have been impacted by mankind. So, yes, some of them do get shot. They get hit by cars. Um, a lot of the baby birds get displaced from their nests, uh, for example, from development. Um, mm-hmm. And we um, always get, in the springtime, swings and hawks in that have been displaced from their nests for one reason or another. The most common bird that we see are um, baby barn owls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly um, the most common species that we see. And, again, they're birds that have fallen out of a nest for whatever reason, um, and then find their way to the Raptor Center where we raise them in family units and get them released back into the wild. Well, Dr. Ferrier, we don't have a lot of time today, but I, I would like to, in the future, travel out to the Raptor Center, take the microphone out and describe what we see, because uh, visually it's quite impressive what you have in some of the cages. Well, thanks, Doug, and we certainly welcome having you come out anytime. Uh, just give me a holler, and, and I'll meet you out there and, and give you a tour. You know, we have a lot of new things happening out there right now. We have a new cage that's currently being built and we're doing a capital campaign right now trying to raise enough money to uh, finish the cage because the one thing that we don't get um, is operational expenses and we rely on the community which has been very generous in the past to support us uh, to um, build the new cages that we need and and I look forward to um, having you come out and see what's happening out there. Very good and I think I'll take this moment to kind of give you give the phone number for the California Raptor Center which is 530-752-6091. You bet. And if uh, folks can do a self-guided tour Monday through Friday from 8 to 5, and we're open Saturday mornings as well. Well, Dr. Bill Ferrier, thank you for speaking with us, and we, we do plan to, uh, to visit again. Great, uh, Doug. Nice talking to you. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in Segment C, so stick around. this segment of our program for obituaries when we do them, and we have a couple to talk about today. The first being the death yesterday at age 94 of Claudia Alta Johnson, better known to the nation as Lady Bird, which, as was noted in the obituaries, uh, was a nickname given to her by a maid when she was just two years old. Claudia Alta Taylor graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in 1934 with a Bachelor of Arts degree and a Bachelor of Journalism degree. At that time, she met Lyndon Baines Johnson, then a congressional aide. On their first date, he asked her to marry him. Although she thought his proposal was a joke, they were in fact married two months later in November of 1934. If you have any interest in history at all, and we certainly hope you do, we recommend in the highest possible terms Robert Cairo's biographies of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Cairo has so far completed three of a four-part series, and they're as good a reading as you could possibly find when it comes to American history and biography. Upon the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Lady Bird Johnson became our nation's first lady. And during their White House years, she campaigned for her husband's civil rights, environment, and war on poverty policies. She also zealously pushed her own pet cause, which was beautifying America. The obituaries I read uh, mentioned how Lady Bird Johnson took her inheritance and invested them in radio and television stations in Austin, Texas, which she operated for 60 years. 
left out of the articles but included in Cairo's book uh, <laughs> was the part about LBJ going over to lobby CBS head William Paley personally to make sure that uh, not only did they get radio and TV stations in Austin, they got a monopoly on radio and television stations in Austin. For decades afterward, LBJ maintained the fiction that he had nothing to do with the business end of what was Lady Bird's TV and radio and empire in Austin. She was a very intelligent woman, and the obituaries noted that LBJ often privately turned to Lady Bird for advice and consolation during tough political times. At any rate, the former First Lady passed away at her Austin, Texas home with family and friends around her at the age of 94. All right, in our obituary section, part two, uh, quite a contrast from Lady Bird Johnson, a name I think known to everyone listening to this program. We note the passing of Count Gottfried von Bismarck, a man I'll wager was not known to any of you. He certainly wasn't known to me until I was sent this obituary by my friend Jane in Los Angeles. Jane titled the email, Probably the Best Obituary Ever. And after taking a look at it, I was inclined to agree, and that's why I'm including it in the program today. And everything that follows is a quote from Britain's Telegraph. Count Gottfried von Bismarck was found dead Monday at age 44. He was a German aristocrat with a multifaceted history as a pleasure-seeking heroin addict, hell-raising alcoholic, flamboyant waster, and reckless and extravagant host, of homosexual orgies. And we have to say, as opening paragraphs go, that one's kind of a grabber. The great-grandson of Prince Otto, the great-grandson of Prince Otto, Germany's Iron Chancellor and architect of the modern German state, the young von Bismarck showed early promise as a brilliant scholar, but led an exotic life of gilded aimlessness that attracted the attention of the gossip columns from the moment he arrived at Oxford in 1983. When not clad in the lederhosen of his homeland, he cultivated an air of sophisticated complexity by appearing in women's clothes set off by lipstick and fishnet stockings. This aura of dangerous glamour charmed a large circle of friends and acquaintances. At any rate, uh, this entire obituary reads like something out of the onion. Anyway, it's just hard to resist details like the fact that Bismarck's removal from Oxford was so abrupt that he was not given time to settle his bills. Prince Ferdinand sent a servant who did the rounds of von Bismarck's favorite watering, ho- favorite watering holes, restaurants, and his tailor bearing a checkbook. And, uh, oh yeah, he, he got booted from Oxford because uh, in celebration of finals, von Bismarck and a young woman took part in a drinking bout that involved excessive amounts of champagne, black velvet, and Sherry before she overdosed on heroin and died on his bed. But by all accounts, he was described as a sociable fellow, uh, flitting from table to table at fashionable London nightclubs. He was said to be as comfortable among wealthy Euro trash as he was on formal occasions calling for black tie. I guess we're proving with this obituary the story that, uh, the quote that uh, the news consists of telling people that Lord Jones is dead when they didn't even know that Lord Jones was alive. I guess, I suppose the other thing we might say about uh, von Bismarck is that uh, no life is truly wasted because it can always serve as a bad example. And I don't know if you caught this story, but a group that called itself the New Seven Wonders Foundation announced this week the Seven New World Wonders. This uh, followed a campaign in January where voters were allowed to choose from 21 sites shortlisted out of 77. It, uh, it so happens that this correspondent has, uh, has seen six of these seven supposed uh, new seven world wonders. And I got to say, this was not a good election. By far the most embarrassing choice on the list, the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. It's a statue. 
I mean, it's on a beautiful site, Corcovado Mountain in Rio de Janeiro. Rio, Rio de Janeiro is the world's most beautiful city, take it from me. But it's a statue in the world's most beautiful city. Anyway, I have not seen Chichen Itza in Mexico, but I have seen the other five on the list. The Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, Machu Picchu, the Roman Colosseum, and Petra in Jordan. I don't know. The Colosseum is pretty cool, but I think I would have picked the Golden Gate Bridge or even the Eiffel Tower or maybe even the Channel in the English Channel uh, over, over the Roman Colosseum. And uh, although Petra in Jordan is pretty cool, make no mistake about it, uh, I'm not sure that I would have put it ahead of Pagan in Burma, a place you perhaps have never heard of, uh, but a place in, in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, where they seem to have had half the cathedrals of Europe or the equivalent of in terms of Buddhist temples, all in one location. A remarkable, remarkable site uh, that, uh, that you know, I think few people have heard of. And head-to-head, I'd certainly give the Acropolis the nod over Petra, but um, anyway, de gustibus non est disputandum. How much you like something, in other words, uh, is something you probably shouldn't argue about, but uh, anyway, I was very disappointed with this list. All right, let's close out with some follow-up on previous uh, articles we've talked about in this show. June 20th article, Sacramento Bee, Natomas Waiver Sought. Subheadline, city officials expected to ask U.S. regulators not to halt building even though levy work isn't done. The article noted that since the Natomas levies lack 100-year flood protection, FEMA has the power to designate North Natomas a flood hazard area. Doing so would require that any new homes be elevated above projected flood depths which in parts of Natomas could top 20 feet. The local building industry, of course, has strongly opposed any restrictions at all. While city and county officials are arguing with the feds that they should be given a reprieve because they're making rapid progress fixing the levees. This is such a disgrace. Someday in the years to come, when there's a gigantic flood out in North Natomas and Sacramento starts to look like uh, New Orleans post-Katrina, everyone's going to go, gee, that's such a shame that happened. Who, but who could have foreseen it? Who except everybody? And there's news out of Louisville, Kentucky last week that federal prosecutors uh, filed notice that they will seek the death penalty if former soldier Stephen D. Green is convicted of killing an Iraqi family and raping a 14-year-old girl. Personally, I hope this guy is convicted, and I hope he does get the death penalty. To do anything less would send a message to the Iraqi populace that the lives of your citizens mean less than the lives of our citizens. At any rate, on a happier note, we've only got a couple minutes left. I think I'd like to quote from a book I picked up down in Old Sack uh, by Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus, titled Unusually Stupid Americans, a Compendium of All American Stupidity. One of the most curious chapters, which I cannot resist quoting from, was titled Stupid Reactions to Terrorism in the U.S. The chapter noted that terrorism is surely not a humorous topic, but that there have been some stupid things done as a result of terrorism which prove the unquenchable American spirit and consequent ability to turn something serious into something silly. One would think, with the heightened airport security that's been in place the last few years, that, um, well... You wouldn't have seen something like a passenger getting detained at Lambert Field in St. Louis when his checked-in luggage was found to have a suspicious item, to wit, an alarm clock that had six toy sticks of dynamite attached to it. There's a story about the Medford, Oregon guy who was running a little bit late for his flight, so he came up with a not-so-brilliant way to ensure his flight was delayed long enough for him to get on board. He called in a bomb threat. Apparently, after he made the call, he wanders over to the American West desk at the airport asking about the flight, which was on its way back to the gate. The clerks got suspicious and called the police. So it turned out he, he missed his flight after all. Crushing the flip side of the coin, we have those overzealous airport security screeners who did the following in order to keep us safe from a wide range of possible threats. Apparently, an airline captain's personal pocket knife which contained a one-inch blade, was confiscated at New York's LaGuardia Airport before he boarded the Boeing 757 he was going to fly to Florida. The reason? He was told that if he kept the knife, he might use it to gain control of an airplane. 
And apparently some uh, airport screeners at LAX, who were eager to stick to the letter of the law, decided that regardless of size, they were going to seize toy guns, even though the guns in question were the teeny, tiny, G.I. Joe plastic toy guns that went along with the doll. Apparently after confiscating the two-inch long rifle, LAX spokesman said, we have instructions to confiscate anything that looks like a weapon or a replica. If G.I. Joe was carrying a replica, then it had to be taken from him. And apparently these alert officials also asked if the doll came equipped with replica hand grenades, which they also wanted to confiscate. Now, we, we really are not sure that a hand grenade the size of a pine nut would really work as a threat. But the final item, and I believe we mentioned this when it happened a couple years back, U.S. Marines headed for Iraq were boarding a chartered commercial airliner when they were stopped by security. They weren't allowed to board while carrying their knives. No problem. They relinquished their knives and boarded the planes carrying their M-16 rifles and M-60 machine guns. Anyway, our thanks to Mitchell Benson of the UC Davis News and Information Service and urge you to tune in to KVIE in a couple hours to see Huell Hauser's visit to our campus. Thanks also to Dr. Bill Ferrier of the Raptor Center here at UCD, which we will uh, visit in the future. On next week's program, we're going to have 2006 Tour de France winner Floyd Landis, as well as hopefully... GOP presidential candidate, Congressman Ron Paul. And if you've got some questions you'd like us to ask Floyd Landis when we interview him tomorrow, send them to us at info at radioparallax.com. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>